0: our differences. That, you know, usually when a couple is dating uh, and they look at all of their differences, and this is how they describe it. They say, we complement each other perfectly. Um, and, and, then, and then they get married and, and they get frustrated with one another and they look at the same differences and they say, we don't have anything in common anymore. Um, and they're talking about the same things. And so we begin to ask the question. How do we approach that in a way that we don't get to that point? I want to start with a passage of Scripture here. Philippians 1, 9-11, that I think sets us up well for this. Paul is praying for the church that he's writing to. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And we look at that, and he prays that their love may abound more and more. That is everything that we would want to come out of this seminar. Where does he say that starts? He says, with knowledge. That if I, love, if I love something, I learn about it. And, and it's in learning my spouse, that is both the evidence that I love her, and what equips me to love her well. And with that knowledge comes discernment and the ability um, to approve what is excellent. That as I know her, the, the choices that I make just fit her better. Because I know her. And that that in that context, there is this aspect of, of purity. And this is what allows love to be trusted. That I will put honoring you ahead of my own pleasure. Because it is honoring you that gives me the most pleasure. And when that attitude is there, as we'll hit really hard in chapter 3, that is what makes love pure, what makes it able to be trusted, that I don't worry about what your agenda is for this nice thing that you're doing. And what allows it to be filled with fruit. Oftentimes in presentations like this, uh, we start talking about love as if it was in some kind of jar and it was a level and it had to be at a certain level for us to be okay. Or it was a bank account and there were so many deposits and not and I don't know that those are the best depictions. So let me offer you a, an alternative picture in the form of a riddle. What is the only thing that actually doubles when you put it in a mirror? Because you know, my kids... You know, they would love if they could hold their allowance up in the mirror and then just grab, you know, another dollar that was there. And that would be awesome. Now I got two and I grab those and I got four. But the mirror doesn't work that way. What is the only thing that actually doubles when you put it in a mirror? Well, the answer is light. If you go into. Uh, the easiest way would be a bathroom, and you turn off the lights and you light a candle, off of that mirror you will have twice as much light. I would say that is a much better picture for love within a Christian covenant marriage. When I love and I give myself in the way that I am truly loving my wife as Christ loves the church, there is not a deposit that is lost in me that is gained in her. And somehow we've got to keep swapping that back enough so that the, that the meters are right. There is something that is genuinely multiplied. And, and so we begin to, we begin to ask what, what are some of the differences? How do we think about this? Uh, and Tim Keller helps get us started. He says, for centuries, and again, I just want to emphasize for centuries here for a moment, sometimes we read a book that was written in the last five years and we go, ah, oh, this is something that we just discovered. And, you know, it, nobody ever thought of this before, like our generation. No, for centuries, people have been doing this kind of stuff. Thinkers have tried to discern forms of love. The Greeks had ways to distinguish affection, friendship, erotic love, and service. There's other ways of breaking down expressions of love into categories. All forms of love are necessary and none are to be ignored. But all of us find some forms of love to be more emotionally valuable to us than others. We may think of them as currencies that we find particularly precious or languages that resonate with us very well. Some types of love are more thrilling and fulfilling to us when we receive them than others. In the incarnation, God came to us in a manner that we could grasp. So we too must clothe our love in a form to which our spouse can relate. You know, as we we think about this, there's, There's lots of different systems. Uh, And I've got some of them on a chart there for you that we could talk about. But I want to help us think about how we think about these. And one passage that was helpful for me was 1 Corinthians 14.19. And Paul's talking about speaking in tongues, but I think we'll pick up on the connection pretty quickly here. He says, Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words in my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And what he's saying is that the purpose of speech is to be understood. he said, if I could choose between speaking five words that you understand in a way that it connected with you and you could do something with it, and it was an encouragement to you and it advanced what God was doing in your life, I'd rather speak five words like that than 10,000 words in this ecstatic experience that was only good for me and my own personal enjoyment. Well, when we think about the differences in the way that we give and receive love, I think that must be the attitude that we have. I would rather speak five words, five actions, five moments that meaningfully resonated with my wife than 10,000 that were only satisfying for me. And until that's my heart, I'm missing the intent of it. Now as we look at these different things, there's several different models. you got probably the most popular, Gary Chapman in the five love languages, where there's physical touch, words of affirmation, quality time, gift giving, acts of service. Keller breaks it down into affection, friendship and service. C.S. Lewis used the Greek uh, words for that. Uh, William Smith uh, gives 15. I don't think it's quite as catchy in terms of something that we can um, you know, break down and have 15 things in our head. But you want to talk about a book that takes love and friendship and just turns them like a fine jewel and gives us all of these different angles into the beauty and facets of it. It does a great job. Uh, for us, uh, we're going to talk about head, heart, and hands. Um, but when you say, which of these do I use? Um, I like the great um, baseball philosopher Yogi Berra and his approach. Uh, he was at a pizza joint there in New York and uh, the guy who was giving his pizza said, "Yeah, do you want this one in four slices or eight? And he said, Nah, you better make it four. I don't think I could eat eight. Um, and these are just different ways of slicing the pie. Uh, and some of them may resonate with you more than others. But here is why... I have chosen this approach. When we get to some of these approaches, they begin to feel like they require a certain level of expertise. You know, I have to learn all of these different languages as if I have to be the Rosetta Stone of romance. Uh, and I feel like I'm hooked on phonics on this kind of stuff. I, I don't know how I can get it. Or, you know, I need all of these different, you know, like romance detective gear of a certain color glasses and earphones. And it, it just, it begins to feel kind of technical and as if it requires expertise and sometimes that's just what we read into it sometimes it's more what the author is doing with it but here's why i've chosen the approach that we're going to use my calling as a spouse is to love all of you with all of me and nothing else will do that is what it means to be one flesh None of this is optional. Some parts of it I'll be better with than I am with others. But it's not as if it's an area of technicality and expertise that I have to master, and if I can't, you should just get over it. My calling, when I look at my wife, is to love all of you with all of me, and nothing else will do. And I think breaking it up into parts that represent the totality of our person can help us see that and get that. And before we get into the part here where it may begin to sound technical even in this presentation, I want to give you a story that I think represents one of the best examples of love that I've ever seen. Uh, When I was in college, uh, I worked a Christian sports camp for 4th through 8th graders. And one of the experiences that you would have as kids would come in for a week is you would have some kids, you could tell they came from kind of rough or neglected home environments. And they'd come in at the beginning of the week, and they'd be really kind of closed off. And as you cared for them and played with them and spent time with them for a week, they began to open up. And in that week, I had two of these kids in my Bible study. And they... One was a boy and one was a girl. And as the week went on, I think that they could kind of tell they were both going through similar things. And there was a sense of bond uh, that that developed between the two of them. And uh, we went through the week. We got to the last day and there's this kind of sad part you can always tell them start to close up again as they think about going home. Uh, I was walking... Uh, along the college campus, and I see the two of them. They're up on a park bench, and I was about to you know, yell something to break up the little hookup camp thing that we had going on. And, um, but, but I paused, and I got a little closer, and I noticed that her head was down. She was crying. And I got a little closer, and I could tell that his knee, it could compete with a hummingbird's wing, and the it was just going. He, he didn't know what to do. He was scared to death. And at that moment, he was both fifth grade boy clueless about what it meant to love his friend well, and he was also hitting a home run in the sense that he knew you were hurting and you are my friend and you will not hurt alone. I don't know what else to say. I don't know what else to do. I feel really like, All of that. But you are my friend and you will not hurt alone. In everything that we're talking about, I don't want any of the technicality, any of the skills, any of the areas that we look at to distract from the fact that we made a covenant that I would love you in good times and bad, in sickness and in health, for better or worse. You are my friend, my partner, my lover. And I, Even if I don't know what else to do, you will not hurt alone, and I will be with you. And anything else that we're doing is simply adding things to that. Now, uh, we start with head. And here I took different parts of the face just to represent facets of love the ears for listening, the eyes for admiring, the mouth for words and speaking. And to, we'll go into that. Take a quote from Dave Harvey. He says, most of the folks that I know pursuing romance and intimacy in their marriages are spending time planning, asking questions, investigating what is romantic to their spouses and not assuming that they know. As with any artistry, there are far more discarded ideas than masterpieces. The pace that I see this most in my own marriage is in the pet names that I make up for my wife. There are about a dozen every week who die after like one shot. Uh, yeah, I'm just kind of going for it. Here we go, call her. And I'm like, does that one get a second chance? And she's like, no. Uh, and she smiles and she likes it, but it's, it's fresh. It's playful. And every once in a while, i come up with one that she really likes. But I don't want to be stale. Uh, I don't want to be lazy. Um, and so in this kind of area, we think about ears. I would say one of the most endearing things that we can do for another person is to hear them. This is, a, this is what I'm about to tell you is the answer to a pop quiz you're going to get on chapter 4. Uh, I, would, I would go so far as to say the ear may be one of the sexiest pieces of human anatomy. And I don't mean like, you know, rub it or like, ah, oh, we nibble on earlobe or that kind of thing. But if I could make a call to husbands, Seduce your wife by listening to her thoughts and her fears and her dreams. Wife, draw out your husband by listening to the things that he is passionate about and the things that are important to him. If you say, I'm I'm not that good at that. Chapter 2 of the seminar on communication is given to listening. But don't just use listening as a conflict resolution skill. Use it to woo and romance your spouse. The eyes. Admiring. I would say there are two ways we should use that sense of eyes and admiration to be a part of the romance of marriage. You know, The first is probably the more natural of just seeing and admiring your spouse. When you get married, your spouse is your is your definition of attractiveness. When I got married, beauty had a face, had a shape, had a voice, had a personality, a hair color, a height, a smile, a skin tone. My calling as a husband is to make sure that in my eyes is the safest place my wife could ever be and as spouses, as we age, our our definition of beauty should mature with it. That when I tell my wife she is beautiful, I am not saying that she belongs on on a magazine cover. I am telling her that she is the essence of everything that I find attractive. There is no competition in the word beauty when I use it for my wife. And so, in that sense of admiration, but also using the pleasure that your attractiveness gives your spouse to bless them back. Revel in that. When you catch your spouse looking at you, smile. Flirt back. Talk about how good it feels. Allow yourself to blush. Allow the, the eye contact to come in that moment to just be something that fuels the spark um, between the two of you. So ears and eyes. Uh, mouth. If part of loving is to be fully known, then communicating is going to be part of loving. Sharing. Sharing. Because if we look at animals, even animals that pair for a lifetime with a mate, there are certain things they just don't do. They don't give compliments. They don't review their day. They don't share their fears. They don't dream together. Those are exclusively human things. So, this is words of encouragement. Good job. I really like that. Thank you. It's really nice how you handled those things. I don't know what I would do without you. We talked about in the challenges about how mundane life can be. How utterly pointless the monotony of life can become. When we encourage and affirm our spouse, we're saying what you do matters. It's going somewhere. It contributes to something. But also words of endearment. I love you. You're a blessing to me. My life is full because you're in it. I enjoy being married to to you. Your smile is the highlight of my day. You make home my favorite place to be. You may say, that's not me. I just feel silly if I say those things. Let me offer you a challenge. Take a week and do that. And see if silly isn't better than your normal Just take the challenge. Let me take a passage that probably wouldn't be one traditionally used in a marriage seminar. Because I don't know how many marriage seminars go to the book of Revelation. But Revelation 2.17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Here we go. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I think it is fair to the text to say, when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to come to us with a stone, with a private pet name, just for us that represents the journey that we have shared together that is used by nobody but us and Him that is a signature of the unique and intimate relationship that we had with Him across the journey of our lifetime. And if Christ can humble Himself to that level of silliness to cement and endear that relationship with us, let us do those things with our spouse. So that's head. Uh, Now let's move to heart. Uh, Heart here, uh, in our modern vernacular, it just kind of means this center of sentimentality. In Scripture, heart is a much broader term. It's used for all of the immaterial parts of who we are. Uh, For us, it would probably be more akin in our language to mind. Uh, That little voice in our head. Everything that it does that can't be reduced to our body. And so here, we have those areas of love that have to do with emotions and interest and intellect. Um, And as we start with emotions, David Pallison walks us into those areas that can sometimes be uncomfortable. He says, you may think, I just don't love my spouse anymore. God has a different way of looking at your disappointment. God says you're discovering for the first time you don't know how to love. You enjoyed affection and, and romance. But love is hard, and hard won. Romance is a wonderful gift, but love endures through hard times. It endures when the heat comes. And the first thing we'll look at is emotions. That part of sharing my heart is sharing how things move me, what motivates me, what discourages me, offends me, confuses me, marvels me. I will tell you one of the most significant moments in the courtship and marriage with my wife is not at all what you would consider a classic romantic moment. It's the same sports camp uh, that I was telling you about with the two little kids. In the third summer that I was a part of that, uh, they asked me to serve as a director. Uh, I was flattered because of the promotion. I took the position. I was not at all ready for it. I was completely overwhelmed for the entire summer. I am a perfectionist who has a really hard time handling when things are merely adequate. I strive for them to be excellent. And in the midst of that, I, I just could not at any point during that summer when I was leading 20 peers my own age and I was too insecure to actually lead. I just wanted their acceptance. There were 300 kids and 50 adults who were older than me in a college campus. And, and I felt like... I was barely keeping my head above water and the waves kept coming. I felt like a failure. We were engaged and Sally got to come and visit me. We were at Campbell University just down the road in Bowie Creek, North Carolina. Uh, we got through the end of a day. Uh, kids were where they needed to be, staff was where they needed to be. And we were having just some time. Um, we were on a set of steps. It was just, it was. I could take you to the place where it was on campus." I was exhausted, and I cried. I felt defeated. I felt overwhelmed. And I think if you ask Sally, she would not tell you that she said something that was so amazing that the rest of the summer just went great, kind of like it should be if this were a romantic movie. And she said, honey, I believe in you. And I thought, yes! You know, I was a mess and she was awkward. And it was an incredible blessing. Because at that moment, I was fully known, which means I could be fully loved. That at that point, when she said, I loved you, she was not talking to that portrayal of a guy that I wanted her to see who was 10 foot tall and bulletproof and had it all together and was going to take care of her for the rest of her life. I could be weak. And she didn't have to have the perfect answer for me to be really glad she was there. And because of that awkward moment where raw emotions were present, we could be fully known and fully loved and trust one another in that in a way that we couldn't when we just shared the pleasant end of the emotional spectrum. And so there's emotions and showing and giving and sharing those. But there's also intellect. We need to be growing people. I don't mean to be Insulting, but stagnant people have stale marriages. We have to be learning and sharing what we're learning. We need to be thinking and sharing what we're thinking, asking questions and searching for the answers together, dreaming and exploring the possibilities. This kind of intellectual engagement is really romantic, it's not just academic. Honestly, this is why a lot of affairs start at work. Because we share this kind of stimulating part of who we are, this intellectual engagement, and it creates a bond in a way, and then we get intellectually lazy at home. And growing and sharing and thinking. When my wife proofreads my blog, uh, it's not just that there's fewer typos there, that it's, what did you think about that? And this is something I've been learning and thinking about and a point for us to, to interact over, and it's, Something that is romantic, whether the topic is or not. And it when you do this, it doesn't just make you more interesting to your spouse. It makes your spouse more interesting to you. Because you have more questions and perspectives and there's more engagement and the, and the whole relationship just becomes more intellectually stimulating and engaging. And then there's are areas of interest. If I were going to create a love language, if that was like something I got to do, I would call it words of discovery. Where I'm interested in things simply because they're in your world and you're doing them. When I ask my wife, what, what's the next craft project you're going to work on? And she says, um, you know, last time we were with my family, I got the, the pillow tops that my grandmother started uh, working on and I'm going to finish those as something that you know I've named after her and I liked her and that's something I can do and all the old yarns up there and I like old things and that's really exciting to me knowing her interest are the kinds of things that even if she knows that pillows aren't really my thing it is more romantic simply because it is significant to her therefore it has significance to me this is where I think we miss part of a, a passage of Scripture where we usually look at it and um, we usually take this passage simply to marvel at God's omniscience. Uh, it's in Matthew 10, 29 and 30, where it says that He knows the number of hairs on our head. And somehow I think we get our idea that God, like it would be really cool that He could win Jeopardy if it's, you know, it was up and like, what is 17,332 And... Eh, Uh, You know, the number of hairs on John's head. Ah, you're right! Nobody. God wasn't trying to win a trivia game. That is just a mark of His love that the details of our life are important. And so, that's head and heart. And now we move to hands. And this is where we hit things like service and presence and touch. And I think Paul Tripp gives us just a, a nice caution as we go into these things. He says, love never demands from your spouse spiritually what God has already given you in Christ. You know, sometimes we get into this kind of stuff and not just hands type of love, but we want want our spouse to, to make life whole and complete in a way that that is really what God is called to do, and our spouse is meant to be one of those blessings. And the more we get into these areas and we see how exciting and satisfying that they can be, sometimes we get distracted um, by the gift and we miss the giver and just want to remind us not to do that. But with our hands, talking about things that we do, one of those would be service. You know, acts of service, one of the clearest expressions of what we mean when we say love is a verb. You know, We can serve and not have to use any words. There's no touch. Our spouse doesn't even have to be present. Service is incredible. Service can take something that would otherwise be unpleasant and distasteful. I hate vacuuming. Uh, I think vacuuming is one of the clearest evidences of the curse and the fall that there is. I just despise it. But I can love my wife by vacuuming. Scraping... Frosty windows on a cold morning. Something I doubt any of us really enjoy. Putting out a bottle of water when one person is mowing the yard just to say thank you and I appreciate it. It's a great form of love. I don't know anything better than service to remove a sense of competition from a marriage. And when you do that, here's what I... I guarantee you'll find that when you begin to serve one another, you will have many fewer arguments that you cannot find a mutually satisfying agreement to. Because when I serve you, what I am saying is that your joy means more to me than my preferences. And when I communicate clearly and consistently, that your joy means more to me than my preferences, you'll trust me to go through something where we don't necessarily agree. Presence. You know, just being there, being close. In good times and in bad, it's something that that means a lot. You know, we experienced this as kids when our parents came to our ball game or our recital. Our parents couldn't be on the field. They had to be in the stands. But somehow them just being there it was bonding. It meant something. Or how many of us, when we go to a funeral, and family and friends gather, and they're there, and there's just something that is comforting and bonding about the, the presence that is there. It means a lot. Uh, in, a, in a survey on sex, uh, where they, they surveyed many, many, many married women. It was one of the large surveys. Not like one of the small, little cheap versions they do on some kind of internet type thing. But one of your substantive studies. They ask married women, what do you enjoy most about sex? It was the closeness, the physical and emotional closeness that comes. Uh, and so proximity is a way uh, that we show love. And touch. And here I don't mean erogenous touching. We'll come to that in chapters four and five, but Holding hands and cuddling and massaging sore muscles and just being close. Um, Those aren't JV forms of touching that once we get married we can forget that and just go to varsity touching. Those are really important. And if you'll endure a biology lesson, I'll try to convince you of why that is. Um, The neurotransmitter most closely affiliated with the experience of trust is oxytocin. And it is released in times of prolonged skin-to-skin contact. And so it's released in great masses uh, when a mother and an infant are holding. It's just a time when you look at the brain and it's spilling out. And there's that moment where trust and bonding is happening. And so the kinds of things that we do, just building trust by touching and holding and putting our arm around one another. Uh, that is chemically building trust. And when we neglect that, what we begin to experience in marriage is only the kind of trust and closeness that we could have with a coworker, somebody that we would sue them if they touched us. Um, and we don't want to do that. And so before we move on, I want to I touch one more subject. Because we get into these these kinds of different ways of expressing love, and and we can misuse them. And we usually misuse them when we've been hurt. And so I want to give us a few cautions there. Uh, Will Smith helps us with that again. He says, The only context that anyone will ever have for experiencing grace from me is when she is in need of it, which is another way of saying she has sinned against me. So if you want to be gracious, that is a grace-filled person, expect to be sinned against. If you struggle to love someone or even like her, start by asking this question. What does Jesus enjoy about this person? What traits, strengths, and qualities did He put into her? The moment that you become aware that you tend to hold back your joy from the other people is the moment you discover or rediscover that you're no longer moving outward to enjoy and embrace your friendship. And there's a few things that that we tend to say that I would give you as red flags that just means you're misusing these kinds of differences and what we need to do with them. Um, One is when we say, this is just who I am. Uh, As if my preferences are who I am. You know, when it comes to our preferences, romantic or otherwise, we need to know what they are. We need to understand their strengths and weaknesses and we need to be willing to submit them to the betterment of the relationship. One of the things that that I am most proud of in the story of Summit, and it was well before I got here, is in that transition from Homestead Heights to Summit Church. When there were 300 people who had been a part of that church for 40 years, and they felt like God was doing and was wanting to do more, and they set aside their preferences. They sold the church building where many of them had been married, where their children had been baptized. They were willing to allow music to change. They were willing to go to multi-site, which means the relationships they built with one another, many of those were, were no longer as frequently shared. And they did all of that for the betterment of what God was wanting to do. And if, if marriage is to be the clearest picture of Christ in the church, then that kind of example where God blesses something, where people are willing to know their preferences, and none of them bad, but to submit them to the betterment of the relationship, I think is a great picture of why we, why we don't say, this is just who I am with our preferences. Or where we say, your neglect justifies my sin. You're not doing this. My needs aren't being met. That's why I'm behaving this way. In a form of blame shifting, that uh, scripture would still say, My actions reveal my heart, and I can't excuse what I do or don't do based upon this. Um, Or a third that's not, uh, the first two are kind of blame shifting. This one I think is much more sincere. Uh, We just need to balance each other out. And we take the things that we really like, and we try to find the halfway point. See, love is not lukewarm. Love is willing to enjoy what each other enjoys at, at the places where we enjoy it. Uh, and so, as opposed to trying to find that halfway point, enjoy each other where you are. Uh, one final piece, hopefully making this simple again. From Brian Chapel, people are attracted to those that they honor and are repulsed by those that they disrespect. again, don't think, ah, head, heart, hands, three each, nine things, I've got to keep my mind on all of them. Whatever changes that you find that you go, this would be good for our marriage from this presentation, should be fine. You know, this isn't like the finances seminar. You know, you go to the finances seminar, it's all about delayed gratification, retiring debt, having a budget, that kind of stuff. And all of it's good and leads to freedom. I'm not downplaying that one at all. But here... Change should be fun from the start. So let me just give you two questions to help you use the material from chapter 2. One, which of these ways of loving would most naturally be incorporated within the rhythm of my day? What are the things that I could add that wouldn't require me to change much? What are the things that I could do that Again, most of love is just going to be in the rhythms of life. So if I don't find those spots where I can use head, heart, and hands and loving all of me, all of you with all of me in the course of my day, it's probably going to be good intentions that fades pretty quickly. So let me look for it there so that in terms of motivation, there's this ease of implementation. And then secondly, which of these ways of loving would be most appreciated by my spouse? And that should be motivating because I'm going to get the biggest return on my investment. And I end this chapter here because I think that's how the gospel motivates us. The gospel does begin with conviction. It shows us the law and says we don't measure up to it. But that's conviction. How it motivates us, how it draws us is we are compelled, we are drawn. We see what God has done. We love Him. We want to pursue that. If we leave a presentation like this and just feel beat up for all the things that we're not doing and we don't feel compelled to what it is that God has for us and the way that we can enjoy the life with our spouse, then we are not motivating ourselves to this change in the way that the Gospel would have us to do.